You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. scriptures around a lot. That's what Christians do. We throw scriptures around a lot. But do we really take them in? Do we really base our faith and our trust on what we're saying? The scripture says he will never leave nor forsake us. And we say that a lot, but it's true. It is so true. He will not leave nor forsake us. He is always with us, even until the end of the age, Jesus said. He's always there. In our walk with Christ, it's easy to lose the importance of Scripture because of how normalized it may be. When we get settled into our routines, we forget the magnitude of His Word in us. Today, Pastor Dave explains that no matter how cliche a verse may seem, His Word remains true forever, and He will never fail you. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Esther, chapter 3, as he begins his message, An Old Enemy Returns. Esther chapter 3, sandwiched in between Nehemiah and Job, you'll find the book of Esther. So, recapping our study in the first two chapters of the book of Esther, we've seen the queen, Vashti, had to give up her crown because she wouldn't come out and parade herself to all these men who had been having a drinking party for 187 days. So she wouldn't come out, and because she didn't come out, she was fired. She was thrown out of her realm as queen, and they had a beauty pageant. They had a contest to see who would be the next queen. And Esther's cousin Mordecai arranged for her to participate in this beauty pageant, but we really know who the one that was arranging it. It was God. God was arranging everything because there was something coming that was going to be severely troublesome to the Jews who stayed in the area of Persia after the, the captivity. So Esther won the beauty contest, and she is now queen. And as we come into chapter 3, the citadel, or the city of Shushan, has been peaceful now, they estimate, for about four years. It's been about four years since the beauty pageant and since Esther became queen. She's reigning. And her uncle Mordecai, if we remember, was appointed to a high position in the kingdom. He's now tending at the gates of the kingdom. And that's an important spot. Usually the elders sit at the gates and they made decisions and they made judgments on things that were happening. If you had a beef with somebody, you would took it to the elders who were sitting at the gate and that's where it was decided. So Mordecai has a high, high position. So much so that he uncovered a plot to kill the king. He uncovers this plot to kill the king, and he explains it to the king Xerxes, but we know him as Ahasuerus, which is his Hebrew name. Everything now is peachy king. All is well. Esther is queen, and Mordecai is happy serving the king, which is what he wanted to do all the time. And it came to pass. That is all about to change. 
in a short time, all the Jews living in the kingdom will be in danger of being killed, in danger of being exterminated, just to satisfy the hatred of one man by the name of Haman. As I was studying, I came across something that was extremely interesting that I would like to share with you. The book of Esther is one of five Old Testament books that the Jews call the writings, actually, or the five megaloths. Megaloth is simply scroll. So it's the writings or the five scrolls. The other books included in the five scrolls would be Ruth, Ecclesiastes, the, Son of Sol- the Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. They make up this writings or five megaloth. What I found interesting that every year during the Feast of Purim, the book of Esther is read publicly in the synagogues. And whenever the reader mentions Haman's name, the people stamp their feet and exclaim, may his name be blotted out. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Don't do that today, folks. Okay, don't do that today. To Jews everywhere, to Jews everywhere, Haman personifies everybody who has tried to exterminate the people of Israel. In fact, they go so far as to call him the Old Testament Hitler. I found that very interesting, but you'll see as we go through chapter 3. So, coming into chapter 3, we're going to meet a major player now in this incredible drama which is unfolding. He becomes a major, major player. Let's look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, after everything that I just told you, after all the things that I just told you, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agaite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Haman the Agagite. This simply means that he came from the kingdom of Agag. This could also mean that he was ascended from King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. You can find that in 1 Samuel 15, verse 8. Now, if this is true... It would certainly explain and give us understanding as to why Haman hated the Jews. An interesting aside before we continue, the founder of the Amalekites was a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. You can find that in Genesis 36. But anyhow, the story of the Amalekites goes back a long, long time, all the way back to Exodus 17, and it tells when the Amalekites attacked the Jews, attacked the Jews while they were in the wilderness. But under Joshua's command, the army of Israel defeated the Amalekites. This is interesting. It's a history lesson. After this, the Lord God told Moses to write in a book that he, God, declared war against the Amalekites and would one day completely destroy them of what, because of what they have done to his children. So God takes a dim view of anyone who comes against his children. We have a a great father who loves his children so much that he wants to protect them from everything. And he takes a dim view. So if you will, take a minute and go backwards a little bit to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, go back a couple places. Yeah, me too. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15 
beginning in verse, well, I'm going to read from verse 1 through 11, if you have found your way to 1 Samuel 15, sandwiched in between 14 and 16 of 1 Samuel. So anyhow, 1 Samuel, he says, 1 Samuel 1, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hear the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he ambushed him on the way when he came from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tilaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to shore, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all of the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they, that, that they utterly destroyed. Because of this, Saul becomes rejected as king. He didn't do what God had asked him to do. He did not do what God has asked him to do. Keep in mind, as we study this, if Saul had done what the Lord had asked him to do, this guy, Haman, wouldn't be in the picture right now. He wouldn't even be around. You know, I studied this and studied this, and there's a lesson here. There is a lesson here to the... Our obedience to the Lord and getting rid of the fleshly desires. Do we completely obey him? I mean, we really think about, do we really completely obey him or do we just do what we think is right? I mean, I'm sure that he has spoken to us and he's given us things to do. Do you complete them? Do you take them all the way? Or do you just kind of compromise and do a little bit here, a little bit there? This is what Saul did. And the results are bad. Sometimes the Lord asks us to do hard things. He asks us to do hard things, but we need to be completely obedient to him, and that can be difficult. We must always be aware of the crazy word compromise. Saul compromised, and look at the results. The Jews now who are left are in extreme danger, extreme danger. Refusing to do what the Lord asks of any of us always puts someone else in jeopardy. Hear what I said? Not necessarily you, but it puts someone else in jeopardy. Somebody wrote, if you're single, it puts the future in jeopardy. If you're married, it puts your marriage in jeopardy. If you're a parent, it puts your family in jeopardy. The Lord doesn't just idly say or request something. He doesn't idly say just, oh, maybe you'll do this. No. Even if we don't understand the reasoning, we must trust that he has a purpose and for what he has asked us to do. In this case, it was the safety for all the Jews who would be in Persia. All the Jews would be in Persia. And it's extremely interesting that Saul, the Benjamite, from Kish, failed to do what he was supposed to do. 
And we found out the other day that Mordecai is from Kish also, from the tribe of Benjamin. Now he's responsible for taking care of this. I think I love how God's plan comes together. I love how God makes a plan come together. So an old enemy now returns. The enemy is an Amalekite. Haman is now sitting above all the princes of the kingdom. He has enormous power, but God permitted him to have this power because there was a purpose that God wanted to be fulfilled. Remember, I said it the very first time we met in Esther, this book is all about the providential hand of God. You can always look at this and know that God is looking so much further and has everything under control even when you get there. As we go through this life, God has already seen the big picture. He's already seen down the road. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's happening. And as we get there, we realize, well, wait a minute. The Lord's been here all the time. Holy mackerel. So we see this thing happening. So, so this guy, Haman, now is going to be really strong. He's going to be really, really strong. So let's read in verse 1. After these things, King Ahazus promoted Haman, the son of Hagamachavah, the Agite, and advanced him to the seat above all princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. So right away, you see something happening here. Right away, you can see that something's going on. We're not told what Haman did to gain the, Lord's, to gain the king's favor. But I'm sure it concluded sucking up. I'm sure that he was a great flatterer. I'm sure he said all the things that the king wanted to hear. Now remember this guy. And we're going to see at the end of this chapter that they both hung around together and drank together. And remember, it was King Ahasuerus that had the drinking party for 187 days. So this guy's used to that. Interesting. Haman did absolutely nothing to be promoted. Not one thing. He just got promoted. When I read this, I went, yo, wait a minute. Sometimes life just isn't fair. <laughs> life just doesn't see fair, but God always knows what he's doing. And we need to remember, we, you know, we, we throw scriptures around a lot. That's what Christians do. We throw scriptures around a lot. But do we really take them in? Do we really base our faith and our trust on what we're saying? The scripture says he will never leave nor forsake us. And we say that a lot, but it's true. It is so true. He will not leave nor forsake us. He is always with us, even until the end of the age, Jesus said. He's always there. So we throw these things out. We have to base our, put our feet in and be steadfast and immovable in what we say. The Lord will never forsake the righteous. He will never forsake you, Ever. No matter what's happening in your life, even though it looks like he has forsaken you, he will not forsake you. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken on our part. He was the one when God turned away and he yelled out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took on everything so that we wouldn't have to. We wouldn't have to be forsaken. It says they bowed before this guy, Haman. Get the picture here. In this day and age, people just didn't bow at the waist like they do now. They were on all fours with their face on the ground, touching the ground when they bowed to people. And it was obvious to everyone, if you're in a whole group of people and they all bow and you don't, it's pretty obvious that you're not bowing, okay? You can't fake that. You can't fake that time. And here's a guy in the past who never told anybody he was a Jew. 
He never told anybody he was a Jew. In fact, they don't even know that Esther is a Jew. Now he has enough guts to admit that he is a Jew. But here, he has enough of the Lord in him that he won't bow down to Haman. I love that. How much of the Lord is in you? How much of the Lord do you have? If you're asked to do something, will you bow down before them? If you're asked to do something, will you acquiesce and bow down? That's what I want to know. We have all of the Lord in us, but when the time comes, will we bow down? Will you take the mark? Will you worship the Antichrist? Will you do those things? I don't know. I hope we're not here to find out. See, God's people were commanded not to bow as an act of worship to anything. They were not to bow. They were not to bow to anyone nor anything but the Lord himself. Reading through the book of Revelation, John bows and falls down and worships two people. They're both angels. What did they say? Don't worship me. They both said that. Remember when Paul and was it Silas who were mistaken for the uh, Greek gods and they wanted to worship then? Paul said, no, don't do this. We're just men. Jews were told not to bow to anyone except the Lord himself. And even though this guy is in many ways out of the will of the Lord, he's really not following the will of the Lord, he just can't bring himself now to bow to Haman. When we were in the world, there were things that we bowed to. There were things that we bowed down. But even when we were in the world, some of us wouldn't stoop that low to do some things. Some of us still had some sort of a conscience or still had some sort of a, a reckoning that we wouldn't do certain things. There were just some things we wouldn't do. Here, Mordecai is not following God's will, but he knows not to bow to Haman. So the plot thickens now in verses 3 and 4. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. For the first time, there's something worth in Mordecai's life that's more important, more important. So he basically proclaims, the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is a pretty bold statement right now for him. It's a bold statement to proclaim that he is a Jew, to proclaim, told them that he was a Jew. Bold statement for them. Someone once said, quote, obedience to conscience and he will of God in defiance of the civil law is not a casual thing to be taken lightly. A lot of people a lot of people back in the days of COVID, a lot of church people defied the law. They defied the law and did certain things. And it's not a, not a small matter. It's just not a small matter at all. And you got to be ready to take the consequences that come with doing that kind of thing. So these guys got together and they became troublemakers, little gossip guys. They went back to the kings and they went running to Haman. Mordecai doesn't bow down. Mordecai doesn't bow down. Who's that remind you of? Not me. Don't you say me. Now, anyhow, <laughs> Mordecai stands for the truth. And this brings Haman's dark side to the surface. God has a way of revealing things, doesn't he? God has a way of revealing truths. And when Mordecai stood for the truth, Haman's dark side was now exposed. It's interesting that many people 
looked at this and they see a resemblance to Adolf Hitler and anyone other who was a Satan-empowered little man in the world who can't stand it if one person won't bow to them or do their will. And this is what people are saying. So Haman turns his hate to every Jew in the kingdom. He turns this into kingdom. Now, let's look at verses 5 and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Here's the picture. Haman wants to succeed in his destruction of the Jews, so he consults his God. He consults his God and gets this lot, and they now have this time. They know exactly when it's going to happen. It's going to happen on the month of Adar at the end of their year. It's interesting that when they did an excavation of the ancient city Susa in 1880 and 1890, they discovered quadrangular prism with numbers 1, 2, 5, and 6 engraved on their sides. It's believed that this is the lot that they were talking about here. It was used to determine exactly when they have greatest success in killing the Jews. In Proverbs 16, it tells that the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. They may have cast their lot. They may be planning to exterminate the Jews on this particular date, but they don't know who they're up against. They have no idea who is for his people, who the God is. As I told you, all this is about the providential hand of God. You can see it all building up. I hope you can see it all building up. Let's look at 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Hazareth, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providence of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other people's, and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who will do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Hmm. Remember, the king had just came from a very expensive war. He attacked Greece and failed. So his treasuries were kind of puny right now. So the thought of putting more money into the treasuries seemed like a pretty good thing to him. Money is the root of all evil, isn't it? I mean, look at that. It doesn't take for Haman much for him to convince the king to do this thing. He promises to pay the assassins 10,000 talents of silver and bring all the confiscated property into the king's treasury. The thought of more money clouded the king's vision, and he didn't even ask who these people were. He didn't even care who they were. He heard the word more money, and he acted. They estimated that the king had lost 2 million people in his war against Greece.
In the book of Esther, the stage is set for a grand story of redemption and bravery. The picture looks bleak, and then it looks even worse, until God flips the story on its head and we begin to see picture by picture how God has redeemed every moment that came before. Our God is a redeeming God. Nothing in your life has gone to waste. No situation has been so bleak that God can't turn it on its head and make it new. In the case of Esther, Haman set out to destroy the Jews, but when God intervened, the Jews were given honor and riches by the people around them. Haman built a gallows for Mordecai, but then was hung on them himself. No matter what the enemy sets up against you, to trip you or to take you down, God will turn it around for your good. So if you're in the middle of the valley, do not fear. God is still with you. He's just waiting for the right moment to flip the story around. You've been listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank. Pastor Dave has been making his way through the book of Esther in this incredible series. If you'd like to hear more from Pastor Dave, head on over to our website, assurehoperadio.com. There, you'll find archived messages on many different topics and books of the Bible. Once again, that website was assurehoperadio.com. And you don't have to miss a single message. Follow the links to more live teachings on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for being here today. We've come to the end of our time together, but we'll be back next time, and we hope you will too. Pastor Dave has more to share on A Sure Hope.